So today's uh, scripture reading, um, if you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can. It's going to be fa- uh, found on page 1127 through 1128. And it's going to be John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Um, also, if you want to, you should have received a Connect card that, if you want to, you can fill it out, put it in the offering plate, and then uh, Pastor Neil can write you a letter saying welcome. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start reading, and if you don't have it, you can just follow, um, follow along by listening. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the, uh, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has, been, who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And are you, you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everybody was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be pleased if you do them. This is God's word. Well, we enter today the last final chapter of the gospel that we started with chapter one, arrival, back at Christmas. And then we've been in you know, announcing for quite a while, and now it's time to get down to business <laughs> and the business of accomplishing it. Because as Jesus, as you read through the gospels and the accounts of Jesus, life, death, and, and resurrection, then that's what you find, is that he arrived on the scene, that he did some amazing things and made some audacious claims and taught some very rich stuff about the ways of God and the best way to live, and then he accomplished what he came to accomplish. And he turned his vision towards the cross that he knew he'd have to bear, and, and he set his mind towards it. And so here at the, at the end of our series, and as we approach Easter, we approach that as well, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I want to encourage you over these last few weeks that, that Jesus died and rose again so that you can die and rise again. And I mean that in a now sense and a later sense. That when you come to Christ, that moment is not just a prayer that you pray or a baptism that you do. It is dying and rising again. In fact, that's what baptism represents. And when we come to faith in Christ, we die with Him. 
to our old way of life and we rise again into a new life in Him. That's not meant to be just a nice idea, but something that we do and we live out. And it's possible because Jesus died and rose again. Not only that, when you die and your spirit goes to rest wherever it is, we also believe that when Jesus returns, all the believers in him will resurrect like he did and have new bodies like he does. That's what scripture teaches. And so, in more ways than one, Jesus died and rose again so that we can die and rise again. And so I'm excited to talk about what he accomplished as we get into uh, Good Friday and Easter season and all that. We're going to talk today about Jesus as a servant and something specific that he did as he turned his gaze towards the cross that frames the, the crucifixion of Jesus. We can't really talk very well about the crucifixion of Jesus unless we understand Jesus and how he viewed authority and how he viewed his role as servant. There's, uh, in the Gospel of John that we just read, uh, it, it shares this incredible story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And this is... Uh, really just found in John. And John kind of skips the Lord's Supper because he expects you to already know about it. Uh, they believe John's gospel may have been written last partly because he assumes so many things. He alludes to them as if you would have prior knowledge. And so he expects that you already know all about communion. But he's like, let me tell you something else that happened in that room um, while they were gathered there together. And we know from other Gospels, uh, like the Gospel of Luke, for instance, that his disciples had this ongoing argument about who would be greatest in the kingdom, right? I think we've covered that in a past message. But, uh, you know, for example, in Luke 22, where a dispute arose among them as to who would be considered the greatest, and Jesus said to them, look, the, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules, like the one who serves. And this, uh, this talking about serving and leadership and authority and all this, this conversation, it was an ongoing conversation with Jesus and his disciples that culminated in that moment in the upper room that we're going to talk about today. And, but as I thought about this and, and the context of it, and these conversations between Jesus and his disciples, I thought about modern day politicians. You know, here in America, I'm sorry to bring it up, but uh, because I don't think that, it, I mean, we have a democracy, republic, democratic republic, whatever you want to call it nowadays, it's very different from what they had when Jesus was around and the apostles were around, and yet politicians are politicians. Isn't that amazing? And so they describe, you know, these benefactors, you know, these, these people who, you know, held positions of power, whether it was Caesar or the Roman Senate or it was Herod or it was the Jewish rulers or it was Pilate or whoever. These people had this tendency to call themselves benefactors. To cast themselves in this light like, I'm here for you. <laughs> I'm here to, make you, to help you get ahead. I, you are blessed because I am your leader. And then they would do these amazing things. They would build these monumental structures. Were they to serve people? No. 
they were for their glory. And so that here, we, here 2,000 years later, we can go and see an inscription in stone of their name. Right? And they did that on the backs of the people while calling themselves their benefactors. Now it's interesting because uh, today we all think about our politicians and we think corrupt. It's probably like the first thing that we think of. Now some of us, we like to believe that some of them are still good people. <laughs> or that they have our best interest at heart. And I surely, out of that many of them, some of them do. And yet we find that no matter the party, no matter the, the positions they hold, um, politics seems to corrupt people even with good intentions. And I saw this video the other day and I will admit it was a conservative video with a very conservative slant. But the point is not conservative. So I'm going to share this with you. I'm not going to share the video with you, but I'm just going to kind of tell you how it went, okay? So they had these, uh, I think they were on like a college campus, and he had like a poster board with pictures of these mansions on it, right? And he had the names of all the presidential candidates listed on magnets where they could kind of move it around the board. And uh, this was back in the 2016 crazy election. And uh, so there was Trump on there, and there was Marco Rubio on there, and there was Hillary Clinton on there, and all these names that you tried to forget since 2016. Uh, there they are for you again. So he said, who do you think owned you know, this mansion at the top that's worth you know, $8 million or whatever? And they'd say, oh, that looks like you know, I don't, Jeb Bush. Okay, so they put Jeb Bush on there. And then they said, well, how about... Uh, you know, this nice countryside manor over here worth 11 million. And they say, oh, that must be Marco Rubio. And then they say, well, how about this expansive mansion right on the beach in the Hamptons or wherever it is? I don't know. And they say, oh, it's like 13 million dollars. That's got to be Donald Trump, you know. And so, and then he would say, actually, Hillary Clinton owns all those. <laughs> and they said, what? And they say, yeah. She owns all those and more. <laughs> and, uh, and they just were floored by this. And, and they, so, they, she said, you know, does that change your view any of, of her? And see, this is what I'm saying. is In our culture, whether you're conservative or not, you tend to think of the, the Republican guys as yeah, being a lot of like rich businessmen who are now in politics. And the conservatives as like the, the social warriors you know, that are in the trenches. And, and uh, you know, they... Uh, these guys, they're patted by Wall Street, and these guys, they're serving the common man, uh, or at least saying that they are, whether you agree with their policies or not. And then, you know, something like that comes up, and you're like, oh. <laughs> so, anyone that becomes a politician gets wined and dined by the rich people. Anyone who gets, you know, becomes a politician uh, has people trying to buy their vote. Anyone who is on there, you know, gets to buddy up with Wall Street. And it's just kind of an eye-opening thing that these people who call themselves our benefactors and who court our vote, saying that they're all for the common people, and yet so often uh, we find out that they're mostly out for number one. <laughs> and maybe they can do a little good along the way. This is nothing new, right? This is what Jesus was talking about ages ago. And he said in his kingdom, it was going to be different. Well, we have this account. Jesus 
we know, enters Jerusalem. Tensions are high. And he walks in, actually rides in, on the colt of a donkey. People are laying down uh, their, their cloaks in the road for him to travel on. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting, welcome to this king, to their king of Israel. Welcome to your kingdom. They're hoping that he's going to be the, the one, the guy, to unify Israel against Rome, to overthrow the oppressors, to regain their former glory as God's people. And he walks into the temple like he owns the place, right? And all this is taking place right after he had raised Lazarus. And everyone's so excited. And, and there's, uh, except for the people who are the leaders. And they want him dead as quickly as possible. And they're spreading word about if you can find a way to get us Jesus where a crowd's not going to start a riot when we take him. Uh, you know, if you can find us a place that we could find him in private somewhere and arrest him, uh, there'd be a, something in it for you. And one of Jesus' own disciples makes a deal, right? Infamous Judas Iscariot cuts a deal with the leaders for 30 pieces of silver. In this room... This upper room, which he had his disciples go and prepare. They sat down to share the Passover meal. This is something that Israel had done together, or at least was supposed to do together, ever since the first Passover in the Exodus. And maybe you've uh, you know, seen movies or read about the Exodus from Egypt and how Moses came and the plagues happened and all that and finally Pharaoh relents and says go get out of here and so on the night before the final plague would strike and their deliverance would come they shared a meal and Moses told them you know take it to go <laughs> make it carry out uh, you don't have time for the bread to rise so just bake it without yeast have a meal that you can be ready to run with because we are going to be leaving town in a hurry. And so ever since then, the people celebrated that Exodus moment by sharing a Passover meal where they prepared the same stuff, the unleavened bread, the lamb. They, they slaughtered the lamb as a sacrifice just as they did at the Exodus when they wiped the blood around the post to mark their door as, as people of God so that the angel of death would pass over them. This is something that they reenacted every year. And people came, Jews came from everywhere to celebrate it in Jerusalem. And that's why there's tons of crowds. And somehow, you know, Jesus manages to secure this upper room for him and his disciples to have a space to share one more Passover meal together. And he sits down with them in a room that, you know, I think a lot of times we probably have different pictures of it in our head of what that looked like. In most Eastern cultures, from what I've read, especially the ancient ones, um, they would have like a really low table, low to the ground. And then they would have like cushions and stuff around it. And they would just kind of recline around the table. 
and so it wasn't like you know dining room chairs and table like we have now. It's kind of a very relaxed looking atmosphere. Um, Jesus was kind of notorious for allowing women at the table, you know, and women to participate, whereas usually it would be a, a men together thing. Uh, and I really don't know what the women usually did while the men did that. Uh, maybe they had their own table. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how all that worked. But Jesus and his disciples are gathered in this room for one last meal and they're reclined around this table and they're talking. And apparently there was still some discussion going on about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. There was a buzz in the air. The kingdom was coming. Everybody just felt it. Something big was about to happen. And so, of course, on everyone's mind is, who's going to sit right next to Jesus' throne? You know, who's going to have the next amount of power? And then that's when Jesus gets up and does the unthinkable. He walks over and takes the basin that the slave would usually take and he wraps the towel that they would usually take around his waist. He picks up the basin and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And this is very uncomfortable for them. Not because they don't like people touching their feet. That's why it would be uncomfortable for you. <laughs> but because this is not what any one of them would do. Because they're not servants or slaves. And it's certainly not what their master, their lord, their rabbi, their king should be doing. I think that sometimes we misunderstand, though, a little bit about this whole Jesus as servant thing. Because a lot of times we read, you know, well, Jesus came to serve. Um, and we read about this, the foot washing. And we begin to paint ourselves a picture of a Jesus that's just humble, meek, and mild, here to serve your every need, here to love you no matter what, and to serve and to serve unto death. And that's what he came to do. And I think that's part of the reason that people don't put much emphasis on doing what Jesus said. He's just here to serve. Here to love. The point of this, though, if we look closely, is that Jesus is actually redefining what it means to be in a position of authority. What I mean is, he's not, by taking on the role of a servant, rejecting the role of an authority figure. Does this make sense? He's not saying, uh, no, I'm not you know, an authority figure, I'm a servant. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am an authority figure, and here's what authority figures should do. Watch. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. See, he had taken off the outer tunic and dressed as a servant and went around. He put back his clothes on and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? And they're probably like, no. <laughs> You call me teacher, 
and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. A lot of times when we tell this story, I feel like we leave that part out. Teacher for them was more than teacher for us. This isn't just someone at school that you go and listen to a lecture from. This is someone highly respected, an authority figure. Lord, we I think maybe understand a little better, is an authority figure. It's someone who holds the power. Someone who says what to do. Someone who you say yes sir to. And Jesus doesn't say, you call me all this, but really I'm just your servant. Does he? He says, rightly so, for that is what I am. And he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. We have to connect this to the discussion about who would be the greatest and Jesus saying, uh, think about all the politicians that call themselves your benefactor, but really they're just building themselves up, right? Not so with you. And then to drive the point home, Jesus, the authority figure, the ultimate authority figure, right? <laughs> they would soon find out he was more than just Lord and teacher. He was the king of all kings. He was the divine son of God who would conquer hell and death. And all authority in heaven and earth would be given to him. Jesus himself said so. The resurrected Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the ultimate authority figure. And he says, Let me show you how authority works. And so when we think about it in that context of that other discussion about politicians and how they typically use their authority for their own personal gain and glory and then contrast that to what Jesus did in that moment, we begin to see what Jesus was saying. When you are given authority, here's what you do with it. You serve others with it. You use your authority to make someone else's life better. You don't just make promises, you deliver. That's how it works in Jesus' kingdom. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Here's kind of the last amazing thing about this is that we, as Jesus' disciples, inherit authority from him. And that empowers us to serve others. I don't know how you view yourself. Maybe you are uh, someone who does have authority on a daily basis. Maybe it's in your home. And uh, yeah, you rule the roost. <laughs> You're the one in charge. And so you have authority, or one of the ones in charge. Or you like to tell yourself you're one of the ones in charge. 
You have authority in the home. Maybe you have authority at work. And people have to do what you say. Or they lose their jobs. Maybe you have authority in church and you are on some sort of leadership team or a business team or some other ministry team that is in charge of certain things, making sure they get done. Those are things we would typically think of. And if you have any of those, I would suggest that this means that for you, uh, that you should reshape the way you do those things to look like the way Jesus would do them. If you have authority in the home, use that authority to serve your family. If you have authority at work, use that authority for the good of your employees or whoever answers to you. If you have authority in the church, use that authority to encourage and build up the church. But here's the thing. If you don't really feel like you have any of that, I'm here to tell you that you do have authority. In fact, I'm here to tell you that all those little things that I just mentioned are little things compared to the authority that you have from Jesus Christ. Because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and His Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, you become a child of God, co-heir with Christ, Ambassador for the king. Think about that. It's kind of scary. <laughs> but he gives you authority in his name to do things and deal with things and walk into messes that no one else has authority to do. You have the authority to speak the truth. You've been given truth. The gospel. Jesus. His word is truth. That sounds... Uh, it's not a popular notion in today's society, right? Where everybody kind of makes their own truth. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus challenged Pilate on the truth. And we, too, have that authority to challenge the powers that be and to say what is true, even when it puts our life at risk to do so. You have authority over sin and hell. Not sure the President of the United States has that, does he? No matter who he is. You have authority over sin and hell. In your life, when Satan comes and he tempts you, in whatever way you're most vulnerable to, by the Holy Spirit in you, and through Jesus' death and resurrection, you have authority 
to stand up against that, to do battle against it, to put it to death in your life. To tell Satan where he can head, right? You have authority to pray. And I'm not sure, you know, that's one of those things where we're like, okay, well, everybody has authority. Anyone can pray, right? Um, yes and no, is what I would say. Yes, I think if anyone earnestly cries out to God, he'll hear their prayer, a prayer of faith. But, I mean, think about it for a moment. Nobody walked into the presence of God and talked to him as a friend before Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is the one that taught us to pray in his name. Because it's in his name that we have the authority to approach the throne of Almighty God and ask for anything according to Jesus' name and character and authority. And so that's pretty... That's some pretty big authority. And it comes with responsibility. All these do. I would say that you have the authority to forgive and to tell people that they are forgiven. Jesus specifically bestowed that authority and responsibility to his disciples. He needs somebody on earth that's willing to walk up to someone who's neck deep in guilt and say there's forgiveness for you. And when they admit and they repent, someone to say, you are forgiven. And that authority was not granted to all pastors, but to all Christians. You have that kind of authority. You have the kind of authority that can look around at circumstances, whether it's in your life or in the world, and do something about it. You know, sometimes you see a mess in someone's life, or you see grief in someone's life, or you see uh, an issue in our world like, I don't know, human trafficking or something big like that that we talk about from time to time in here, or drug epidemics or whatever the case may be, and your heart breaks for it. And you wonder, who's going to do something about this? Well, guess what? <laughs> Jesus has given you authority to walk into those situations, to walk into that hospital room. You don't need an invitation. If they kick you out, respectfully leave. But you have the authority to walk into that situation and to pray with someone and encourage them. You don't need to wait for a letter from me to do it. You have the authority to walk into someone's life who's struggling with addiction and speak truth into their life. You have the authority to help them get help. You don't have to wait for the government to show up to help someone in need. You have the authority to do something about it in the name of Jesus. We are children of God, co-heirs with Christ, and as his disciples wrestled with who would have the greatest authority, Jesus is thinking, you're going to have more authority than you know what to do with. And what are you going to do with it? Some Christians today, no one in this church, 
but you know other churches. Some Christians today, they come to their faith in Christ and they use their newfound authority to either beat other people over the head with it. Ever seen one like that? Uh, to feel really self-assured about how much better they are than everyone else and how much more they have a corner on the truth instead of using the truth to set people free. Or to be judgmental towards other people. Or to sit back and enjoy their salvation and all the good blessings that come along with it and the hope of eternity in heaven with Jesus. And I would suggest that that is a form of using your authority just as the world would use its authority instead of using your authority to serve others. Jesus' disciples inherit authority that empowers them to serve others. We took communion today and remembered that Jesus, the one who is the ultimate authority figure, laid down his life as a servant. He didn't do it because he wasn't in charge. He did it because he was in charge. And where did his authority come from? Well, he's one with God, of course. But the way he described it was he was submitting himself to the will of the Father. And that's where authority is found, is in submitting to authority. Your authority was found when you submitted to his authority. And when you submit to the king's authority, then you share in his responsibilities and what he's trying to do in the world. Will you submit to his authority today? Will you accept this notion that the authority that he bestows on you when you submit to his authority is to be used to serve, not to enjoy. I think what you'll find when you do that is that it's the most enjoyable thing you've ever done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you Thank you for what Jesus did. Thank you for what he taught us. Goodness knows that we don't deserve the authority you bestowed on us. And oftentimes <clears throat> we've misused it. So Holy Spirit, teach us what it looks like to be the ambassadors of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus the King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.